0: Hi, good afternoon and Merry, 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 Merry Christmas Eve uh, to everyone attending. Uh, And there's so few people attending today that we could actually give you all shout outs by name. So thanks for coming. We appreciate Uh, it. Today uh, uh, we're going to do a uh, a webinar on reimbursement and subrogation in New Jersey. Thanks for joining us. Uh, My name is Greg Lois and I'm joined today by my partner Joe Jones.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Joe runs our New Jersey practice, uh, which is for attorneys and three paralegals. And our New Jersey attorneys go to every hearing point throughout the entire state. Yes. All right. So today we're going to talk about Section 40. And it's kind of a fortuitous moment to actually have this podcast or this webinar today because uh, we had a significant new decision come out in December 2018 that's going to affect our clients' subrogation rights. Yeah. Uh, I hope if you're at home right now watching along, um, and and Anna, we see you out there, so thanks for coming, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope everyone has a copy of our book, uh, which is our New Jersey handbook to defending workers' compensation claims in New Jersey, and the handout materials for today's presentation are essentially Chapter 13 from the book. Now, the book went to the press in November 2018. Uh, just a few weeks before the decision came out in New Jersey Transit versus right. Sanchez, which sort of changed things. So we changed the handout uh, to reflect Transit versus Sanchez, right. and we're definitely going to talk about it today. But at this point, the book is already, even though it's only a month old, it's out of date uh, because some of the information in the book has now uh, been erased or destroyed by this new decision. Yeah. Which we're going to, to talk Division. about. <laughs> Thanks to public Division. You know, come on.
1: Ruining Chapter 13.
0: Folks. All right. So let's just uh, go through this kind of quickly and then try to talk about transit versus Sanchez, which is I think you know the most interesting thing that's happened in a while uh, Yes, you do have the right to be reimbursed for everything you spend in your workers' compensation case uh, that's called section forty a lien right or section forty reimbursement right uh, The only thing we want to remind everyone who's watching is that section forty is not self executing right so we have to do stuff so. Let's talk about our thought process from when we're going to counsel a client about reimbursement or subrogation.
1: Right. So the the first thing we want to figure out is, is there an actual responsible party of some Mm -hmm. kind? Mm -hmm. If this is a normal accident where you get hurt on the job, uh, maybe a forklift driver, one of your coworkers hits into you or something like that, there's no one responsible other than the employer or employee that you work with. So there's no potential for a Section 40 liens. Um, If, however, as often as the case is like a motor vehicle accident, maybe you have a delivery driver. He gets hit by some random person at an intersection. Mm-hmm. There is now someone else. There's a tortfeasor out there who's responsible, who's not an employer, not a co-employee. Yeah. And and that brings with it certain rights, certain lawsuits, and certain benefits that you can get from that person independent of workers' compensation.
0: Yeah.
1: That's definitely something we have to look for. Um, obviously, the, the big notice of something out there is a lawsuit. Somebody's filed a third-party lawsuit against those responsible people, uh, and that's something we certainly have to look for and keep track of. And ultimately, it comes down to, was that person's injury the result of someone else's negligence? That's not an employer, not an employee or a co-employee. That's kind of what we're looking for in terms of potential actions.
0: You just mentioned it. I think by far the most common circumstance is the motor vehicle accident because it's off-premise. It's involving some other party. Hopefully, that's not our driver. All right, so what do we have to do? Uh, to make sure that our right to reimbursement is preserved?
1: Well, the first thing we do here is with our package that initially goes out with our answer or whatever other initial engagement documents, we always do a Section 40 lien letter. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially a letter sent to multiple parties. We'll send it to the petitioner's attorney. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll send it sometimes to the petitioner if they're not represented. Or if we happen to know the third-party attorney already representing that person, which Mm -hmm. is not always the same as the petitioner's attorney in the workers' comp case, we'll notify them as well. Mm Essentially, it just says we have these rights under Section 40. We are hereby preserving our claim to be reimbursed. Be aware.
0: Right. And that correspondence has to go out certified mail. Right. Or uh, we call it lawyer service or courier service because we have to be able to prove that we actually sent that out in order to preserve the right. Right. And this is different. I mean, you know, a huge part of our practice is New York. New York, their reimbursement and subrogation statute is self effecting meaning carrier, employer, doesn't have to do anything, and they have an absolute right to recovery. In New Jersey, if we don't assert our right to recovery, we're essentially waiving it. So that's something to be mindful of. But
1: fortunately, it is easy to do. So if you just get that Section 40 lien letter out, and then there's other ways we'll talk about of how we continue to preserve that right as we go along.
0: Okay, so let's imagine that we've sent out our lien letter. We think there's a third-party tortfeasor. We know they filed a claim. Uh, What are we doing to just keep up to date with what's going on in that claim?
1: Most of the time, we just simply monitor it. Mm -hmm. Um, We can check, for example, uh, just like New Jersey workers' comp cases have New Jersey courts online, there's a similar database uh, for civil cases, and we can check that and monitor the status of that. Mm -hmm. It will give you discovery end dates or uh, certain significant events that happen in that case. Mm -hmm. Um, And we just watch and wait. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, we'll uh, maybe send off an email to the relevant parties, Hey, guys, what's the status of your case? Mm-hmm. And often they'll get back, eh, discovery, nothing happening. But then as things start to get to the settlement phase, usually when discovery is over, depositions are done, interrogatories have been answered, then they start to discuss policy limits and if they're going to tender to the policy, if they're going to settle this case, and that's where we start to more closely monitor so we can make sure don't forget about us, guys. We're out there with our lien and, mm-hmm. and make sure they're aware of we're getting paid at the end of this. Right. And
0: now they have a duty. Once we've served them with that lien letter, they have to get right. back in touch with us right. and, and start talking to us about that. Right. All right. Uh, let's talk about how much we get back and and how we know how much we're going to get back. The easiest way. By the way, the most important question that
1: yeah, our clients ask us yeah, that and want so to know. Right. <laughs> how much do I get back? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the easiest way for us to tell this is the payment ledger. Mm-hmm. Do you give us a payout ledger of... Every expense that there is on the file Mm -hmm. will be able to comb through that and tell you which expenses are reimbursable, which are not. Uh, For example, um, uh, an example, I'm trying to think of an example. IMEs. IMEs, IMEs. right. Um, Sometimes people ask about, like, interpreter fees. Mm -hmm. So if the petitioner needs an interpreter to go to the doctor's appointments, uh, you might think, well, it's an interpreter. That's not a fee that's reimbursable. But we look at it as anything that's a benefit to that petitioner. Is something we can get that's back. part of medical first. treatment, really. Transportation to that doctor's appointment, stuff like that, are, sure. are things that our clients are often on the border about. Is that something that's reimbursable or not? Mm-hmm. We certainly ask for those. They're, it's a benefit to the petitioner uh, as a result of the workers' comp case. So that is something we're looking to get back. Uh, um, surveillance, not. Surveillance, not. Administrative expenses you can't get mm-hmm. back. So if you're paying a, a monitoring agency or maybe a nurse case manager or something like that just to sort of supervise things, you're not going to get that back. Uh, but anything... Um, that has to do with that case, certainly for the benefit of the petitioner.
0: Yeah, and so certainly any lost time benefits and any permanency benefits and any medical benefits, we're going to be able to recover them. Um, The only limitation is the amount that's being paid as attorney fee, which in New Jersey can be all over the place. It's not necessarily a third, and I like to remind clients that. um, Statutorily in New Jersey, the bigger the case gets, the smaller the attorney fee is. right? Right. So in a wrongful death case... Recovery is over a million dollars or 1.5 million. They don't get one third, they get 25%. The percentage shrinks down. So that's something for us to be mindful of in that huge third party recovery that it might not necessarily be a third of that recovery gets taken by the attorney. Right, it is
1: the norm, it's the (coughs) standard we sort of look at. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it's good to be mindful of uh, even like a minor, if a minor brought a case, Mm maybe 25% rather than 30%, Mm or uh, Mm -hmm. 33 to third. So, um, and then the fees, the uh, costs rather. Are up to $750. Yeah, now, period. Just, right, that's it. And if you have a standard uh, case, you might only spend $250 in filing fees if you're that petitioner's attorney, but, um, and you could certainly spend more than that if it's a significant
0: right, case. Right, which that includes experts. Right. So, you know, you think about a medical malpractice case, maybe right. growing out of the medical treatment from a cob case, the expert might cost $15,000. Right. you're going to exceed the $750 report. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually pretty favorable to the employer that the fees are limited, or the costs are, right. are limited to $750.
1: Right. And the attorneys, that's a, the petitioner's attorneys often try and deduct their entire expenses. Oh, you know? yeah. are like, no, 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 seven, up to $750. That yeah,
0: I, so, I mean, we've seen postage, Xerox, all, right, all sorts of right, stuff yeah, on there. Yeah, so. Uh, so when we're talking about how much we get back, uh, what about the circumstance where the third-party or civil settlement or award is just
1: far less than what we've paid out in workers' comp? Okay. Well, then we're just going to get whatever. If, for example, we paid out a million dollars and the settlement is only you know thirty thousand dollars for a third-party case, we're just going to get back that two-thirds of that thirty thousand mm-hmm. minus the seven fifty, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and that's it. We yep. won't be able to get any more.
0: Um, now, where the where there is a credit going forward, so the third-party award is pretty large we're going to be able to take that discount going forward at whatever that rate was. Right.
1: Um, it, the cases settle sort of in one of two orders. Either the third-party ca- case settles first, and then we still have, maybe we've paid out all our med, paid out all our temp, but we're still noodling around with PERM and trying mm-hmm. to get that, that worker's comp case uh, finished to a permanency award. Or comp case is completely done, and then that helps the third-party mm-hmm. case settle. Mm-hmm. So depending on those circumstances, it depends on when we get our money. Sure. The third-party par- ca- third case settles first, we can get uh, our two-thirds from that case, and if our award is larger, we can continue to take benefits out of our permanency award when we go to pay that out as well. Um, and that happens sometimes. Other times, permanency's all been paid out, we know what our med temp and perm numbers are and our two-thirds amount, mm-hmm. and then when that third-party case settles, we just get a check for that. that all
0: right, point. cool. Well, let's, let's talk about maximizing reimbursement, and you know, I think this is the scenario where, hey, uh, we've, we've paid something out in our workers' comp case, the civil case is settling now, and now the plaintiff's attorney is on the phone with us, saying, "Oh, my case is garbage. Look, you guys should be getting back maximum one hundred thousand dollars, but just take twenty thousand right. dollars, because otherwise, uh, you know, my, my client's going to just abandon their claim. It's it's a stinky claim, and you know, it just it stinks and it's garbage, and they're going to they're going to win if I have to go to trial."
1: This, this is the most frustrating part of Section forty lien stuff. I think. Yeah. Uh, the petitioners, it, it's a statutory right. Mm-hmm. You get it. There's mm-hmm. no if-ands or buts. There's no let's look at the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But the petitioners' attorneys, by and large, try and finagle out of paying <laughs> <Right>. there. <laughs> they they make They try to make
0: it seem like it's an option. <laughs> right. Or, or that there's a you have to negotiate. And, right. You know, I think it's important to tell clients. You don't have to negotiate no, at all.
1: You know, no. you're do what you're do. Right. There, I've, I've had adjusters call me, and I've had clients call me and say, well, I spoke to the third-party attorney myself, and apparently we're only getting a third. And a third goes to the attorney, and a third, a third goes to the petitioner. And that's the third, third, third that they all like to cite. And that's the way it is, right? No. No, no absolutely not. Uh, we get our two-thirds. Now, the petitioner's attorneys like to... Phrase the discount on mm-hmm. the lien uh, in a couple different ways. First, they'll point to the fact that, well, you know, the petitioner, he's not going to sign and sell the settlement papers if he doesn't get any money out of it. So, if two thirds is going back to pay our lien and the other third is the attorney's fees, the petitioner gets nothing. Right. Out of that case, and why would he sign the papers? He's not even going to come in today to sign the papers. He doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know the attorney cares mm-hmm. about his his fee, so he's going to make that person come in and sign regardless. Yeah. Yeah. but that's that's their attempt to convince us like, well, help me out here. If you want the guy to come in and sign and cooperate, you got to give a little bit. We don't have to right There are times where it might make sense to do that, but you certainly don't have to. yeah uh, the other thing uh, they'll tell us is well, the petitioner, he's just going to abandon his claim. He's not going forward. he doesn't want to come and do depositions and all that stuff, all that discovery stuff. you can't take off time from work mm-hmm. and so sorry, you're not going to get paid right Again, attorneys get paid. Contingency fees—they get paid if they get money. They want to get money. They're not going to let their clients abandon claims. And, and we're just
0: going to talk about it in a second. Yeah. And we can well, say, yeah. "Oh,
1: you're yeah. abandoning your claim?
0: Oh, that's cute. We'll take it on. We yeah. can subrogate." Yeah. Well, this new case sort of changes the landscape of that. We'll definitely sure. get to that in a second. Yeah. All right. So, uh, just the last couple words about maximizing reimbursement. That, you know, uh, sometimes uh, we've gone out of our way to help out the plaintiff's counsel. Because remember, when they're out there trying to get money from some third party, they're our friends, right? right? We want them to get as much money right. as possible. And so we've done things here, um, pretty typically we'll do things like, hey, let us let us give you a complete copy of the medical record. Our right. medical index is usually in very good shape. And we could say, hey, we'll flip this forward to you. And then you could use that in your case to sort of beef up your claims. Right. Uh, they, they definitely appreciate that. Uh, we've gone as far as to recommend experts or recommend doctors that their doc they should go to you for the third-party case. In other right. words, hey, I want you to maximize your statement of damages because I'm getting some of that back. Sure. So giving them some advice. Um, we will go to any mediation, settlement conference, conciliation hearing, whatever needs to be done right. to both represent the workers' compensation interest, but also to explain to everybody what the workers' comp interest is. And to compromise, if need right. be, to get that settlement to move through. So yeah, because
1: it is amazing how many people on that level don't understand the comp aspect of it, mm-hmm. and the and the work Section Forty lien right of that aspect. So even that the judge who's maybe doing the arbitration or the mediation, yeah, just thinks, oh, they get a third, so we'll just call. It. No, no, no. You know, again, like it, we're there for information. We're there to help.
0: Yeah, and the other thought I would say is, you know, in a run of the mill case, probably not necessarily to have us there, but cases where there's multiple, there's an accident that took place in New York, there's New Jersey workers' comp benefits, and maybe the carriers from yet another state, you know, it's useful to have us there to sort of explain, hey, here's how these benefits would work, particularly in dual jurisdiction uh, situations where the civil claim is in a different jurisdiction, the comp benefits were paid under New Jersey statute, how does Section 40 apply to that other state's uh, recovery scheme? So that's something to be thoughtful of. Uh, Preserving credits going forward... Uh, look, I like to post it everywhere. So once we send that initial Section 40 lien letter, that's our best practice is to keep every time we're signing a document, we're putting it in there. Right. You know, we're continually asserting that right. And I think the reason to do that is because you could be deemed to have waived it if you're not affirmatively asserting it. And particularly at the time of settlement, if we settle a case, Section 20 or Section 22... That's the time to put on that order. I'm asserting our Section 40 lien right. right. Simple one sentence. Right.
1: that goes in there, and it's noticed to the world in general. Mm-hmm. We are continuing to preserve that right.
0: All right. Let's, let's shift gears now to sub because okay. I think we've covered reimbursement. Um, can we
1: subrogate? We can. All right. Can. And cool. again, this new case we'll talk about in a minute sort of changes the landscape of that. Um, we can and we want to, and sometimes we want to, even if the petitioner or the plaintiff uh, in that case doesn't want to.
0: Yeah, so... Subrogation just means stepping into the shoes of another. Right. And this is where we, as the workers' comp carrier, workers' comp employer, is going to the claimant and saying, hey, you're not going to bring this lawsuit? We're going to step into your shoes and bring it on your behalf. And it used to have the, the, the same limits or the same rights as the employee as the claimant. Right. Same limitations. Guess what? New decision says, Nope. Uh, you're not subject to the same limitations right. as We the actually have defeat.
1: more rights and less limits now than the petitioner would himself in that exact situation.
0: So let's talk right now about Transit versus Sanchez uh, because this is like a really, I think, uh, groundbreaking decision that we haven't seen this before. Our statute was amended in 1979 to include Section 40. Uh, not a heck of a lot of case law on Section 40. No. It's pretty clearly written. And in the past, we would have... Uh, you know, the the most common third party case we would see in a workers' comp context is the motor vehicle accident, right? And this case really talks exactly to the kind of cases where are we were compromising, we were taking anything, or the cases were getting abandoned, right? So let's talk a little bit about the facts in okay. transit versus Sanchez.
1: All right. So this was decided uh, by the Appellate Division, December four, two thousand eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it requires, I think, a little bit of background, sort of setup. So before this case, the typical landscape we dealt with, uh, especially in verbal threshold cases, that is a a case in a civil case, you have a car accident, and you've chosen on your own insurance policy the verbal threshold, which is basically a higher level. You need to uh, prove certain injuries, Mm -hmm. disfigurement, dismemberment, or significant permanent injury of some kind in order to get over that threshold Right. And get money from the insurance carrier. And
0: that standard of permanent injury is not the same standard as workers comp. No. Workers do.
1: comp is right. basically
0: you go in there, you go, ah, my back aches. Okay, cool. You're going right. to permanent, permanent injury. injury for the rest of your life. Right. right. <laughs> uh, but the verbal threshold, really, there had to be something more. You know, we, they were looking for fractures or amputations right. or some type of real significant right. injury. And so the kind of stuff you could collect for a workers comp, again, sprain, strain of the lower back, you, they weren't getting any money for right. that.
1: I had actually spent years doing personal injury as well. Uh, And essentially a herniation with significant treatment would get you generally over the threshold. Mm -hmm. Disc bulges were just sort of not Not going to happen. The the, the theory seemed to be that everybody who walks around without injury has disc bulges Mm -hmm. in their Mm back, And it wasn't permanent enough for purposes of the verbal threshold. And certainly, as you said, sprains and strains were not cutting it. Mm -hmm. So those were type injuries that immediately, because of the verbal threshold you would be just cut out from receiving benefits. Like mm-hmm. You'll never succeed in court on a, on a spring and strain or a disc bulge-type case mm-hmm. and never get over that threshold. So that's sort of the landscape we were dealing with. You might have, just say, a disc bulge case. They receive MED. They receive TEMP. They get a permanency award in workers' comp because it is considered permanent for purposes of a comp. But in the third-party world, in the civil world, that injury will never get them any money from a third-party case because they'll never s- surpass that threshold. So that's what we were dealing with up till now. Mm-hmm. And when we step in the shoes of the uh, plaintiff or the petitioner, we have the rights he has. And if he can't get over the verbal threshold, we can't get over the verbal threshold. And therefore, if he gets zero, we get zero. Right. And that would often be, as we talked about, the plaintiff's, the petitioner attorney's threat of, I don't think my guy's going to get over the threshold. You exactly. guys better take this little money offer yeah. now. Hey, they offered so, me ten grand. Right. You know, let us just do it. Right. Uh, New Jersey Transit versus Sanchez changes that all. Uh, this seems to parse out a separate right that we have. Mm-hmm. as the respondents, as the carriers, to receive subrogation irregardless of that verbal threshold. Mm-hmm. We don't have that same limitation. Right. Uh, it focuses, I think, mostly on the medical, the, the economic aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Economic damages versus non-economic damages. The economic damages being the, the medical and the temp, essentially. That you're Whatever getting. we paid, right? right? right. Yeah. And uh, this is important because it really, that thread of we're not going to go forward because our guy's never going to get any money doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Yeah, we don't and care about it. In
0: this case now, we're, they're saying, hey, th- just because the petitioner couldn't recover. Right. Because statutorily they're barred under ACRA. Right. Sorry, and, uh, But now they're saying, comp carrier, you can. You're not barred under ACRA. You're not mentioned. Right.
1: And it actually no, distinguishes agree. that the the ACRA does not apply, which is the, the Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act. Um, it's workers' comp. Mm-hmm. And ACRA was passed 70-something years after the Workers' Comp Act. And if ACRA wanted to somehow exclude us from having this separate right, it would have, and it didn't. Right. And I think it was really smart thinking on the part of the developers. Well, the other Health interesting vision, the way they analyzed
0: it. is that the Council on Occupational Safety and Health, which is really just the plaintiff's bars, uh, submitted an amicus brief, right. raising oh. all sorts of issues. Oh, sure. And sure. Everything yeah, in the they world. They said, sorry, <laughs> you didn't bring that up in the in the court below. We're not addressing it. So right. there is a potential that this could get narrowed in the future with, you know, more selective case law. But right now, uh this is great for employers so you know we're telling them uh we're telling employers hey you can subro a lot of things uh the navy in the past we weren't we weren't subroing them and that's right. something to be mindful of um right. yeah. you could still subro of course anything at the actual tortfeasor anything against uh for example uh medical malpractice the claim it goes to sure. a physician and the physician harms them even worse great now we can we can do that legal malpractice even failing to file claims against right. the uh, maybe someone who malpracticed right uh, so those are those are you know things to be we've always been able to do uh, but now we put this new bullet on these slides we can subrow even where the petitioner would not have a claim yeah hey, and that's person. huge and again you're right
1: that the case law that'll come out after this may narrow that down mm-hmm. or further sort of distinguish or, or explain but to be uh, determined for right now it's a huge I think plus for us and we're going to explore it as best as we can
0: All right, so let's talk about Howie Subro. We've talked about initially preserving our rights via the Section 40 letter that we're always sending. Um, But to subrogate, to step into their shoes, we have to actually go through two more
1: steps. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, We can't do it right away. Mm -hmm. So when the accident happens, up first, we have to wait a year, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, We put them on notice that we have a Section 40 lien right, and then we wait to give them the opportunity to maybe bring the lawsuit themselves. Mm -hmm. And we wait that whole year, and if nothing happens and they don't bring the lawsuit, Um, We can then take step two, which is to put them on notice uh, Mm -hmm. 10 days later Mm -hmm. that we are now going to bring this action on the petitioner's behalf, whether or not they want to be involved or not. None of that matters. Uh, And then we file the complaint.
0: Yeah. And typically, I mean, the very few times we've done this. That's their trigger to go out and find an attorney and take right. the case. You know, right. they're, now they're saying, "Wait a second, you're going to do? Maybe I should go find someone to take care
1: of this." And I think the biggest delay on the part of the petitioner has always been the verbal threshold issue. Mm-hmm. I think when the petitioner's attorneys get the workers' comp case, they look at the maybe the potential motor vehicle accident, they realize the person has a verbal threshold. They think to themselves, "I don't think we're ever going to get over that." Don't worry, petitioner. Don't bother bringing it. All you're doing is essentially getting money for your carrier anyway. Who cares? Mm-hmm. They don't practice maybe in third-party cases. They only do workers' comp, and they right. don't want to form it out to somebody else so, or potentially to lose the workers' comp case. So they just don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. They let it go. So we have the opportunity after that year and 10 days to say, we don't care that you're waiting. Let's do
0: it. All right. So limits on sub-row. The, the most basic one is, hey, uh, the statute of limitations. Right. It's two years in New Jersey. Uh, it's three years in New York, and there is longer statute of limitations for things like malpractice. But typical auto accident case you got two years to get right. moving and you have even less than that if it's involving a public entity right. so these are thoughts to be there are things to be um, mindful of there are we believe still going to be some type of first party benefits that are not going to be subrogable things like um, you know private disability plans right. uh, the um meaning underinsured motorists uninsured motorists or underinsured motorists right uh, protection which is purchased by the petitioner themselves so in other words a first party benefit probably still not going to be subrogable even after transit versus sanchez right. but that right. stuff again to be explored nowadays sure um, the other problem with subrogating is now we are at, now we are stepping into the shoes of the claimant and right. we're going to need the cooperation of the petitioner in that action right. good luck
1: yeah, right. that's a bizarre scenario.
0: Right, because we're going to have a situation <laughs> where we are now adverse to them in the workers' comp proceeding, right. but representing them in the, in right. the and civil proceeding do things. Like, right, so like we typically withdraw from that uh, so at least one of those representations, because you know right. there's a potential for a conflict there, um, and even more bizarre is where the claim is unrepresented in the comp case. Sure. And now we're repre- the only attorney they have is us. We're adverse to them in one court, right. and we're representing them in another court. And those are some challenges. They're not really, really
1: taking our phone calls at that point. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. All right. That's the end of our presentation on reimbursement and subrogation. Uh, we've got very few attendees today because, again, it is Christmas Eve. Thanks for coming Thank in. Thank you very much, by the way, you. for those who did attend. And, and who stuck around to the end. So uh, I'm, look, I'm looking in here. Oh, wait. We do have a question. All right. This is amazing. All right. Uh, Annie asks, all right, she's been with us since the beginning. Here Thanks, we go. <laughs> um, PIP ledgers are almost impossible to get from the adjusters. Uh, therefore, is the ledger from our practice sufficient, especially the surgery cases performed at, and then there's an abbreviation here. All right, so PIP ledgers, impossible to get from adjusters. Okay. I'm not quite certain what that means.
1: So, Well, okay, so in a car accident-type situation... Worker's comp should be primary. If that if that accident occurred while working, you could certainly have bills paid under your PIP policy. Oh, yeah. Under your auto insurance.
0: Incorrectly, of course. Right. Because comp is primary to auto. Right.
1: right. So comp so, should
0: be paying from the
1: beginning. So PIP should be zero in, a, in an ideal world. PIP mm-hmm. should be zero and we should have our meds and temp and everything else in our ledger. Right. Uh, I guess there are certainly scenarios where maybe someone starts to go out and treat unauthorized. And maybe there's a PIP ledger. I think that's what Anna's probably talking about, uh, where maybe you know ten thousand dollars worth of bills were paid initially. Then we get involved. We maybe accept the claim. We now pay the bills going forward. Mm-hmm. So I guess there is that still ten thousand dollars floating around out there. Um, you are correct that it's really difficult to get those PIP payout ledgers. Hmm. The, the I don't know why. Uh, we ask any one of our clients for a payout ledger in a workers' comp case, and immediately emailed yeah. same day back. Uh, for some reason, PIP. They don't want to provide that. And when I had done PIP work as well, that it was really hard to get for some reason. I don't know why. Hmm. Maybe they're just lazy. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. but well, I mean, I could see that holding up the settlement of the comp
0: case, right? Because we got to satisfy this potential PIP lean or resolve right. it. Right. And I'm not going to put a settlement through until I know what I'm going to have to reimburse the PIP carrier. Right, because the PIP carrier
1: will certainly come in asking for reimbursement as they should never have paid those potentially related bills to the
0: workers' comp claim. Makes sense to me.
1: So uh, I don't know what causes the frustration, Anna, in terms of getting those. You're right, though, there is a lot of frustration about that. But from our perspective, we need to know that amount before we resolve. Mm -hmm. So we'll certainly help you. uh, If we have a case where that's involved, we'll certainly reach out to those people as well. Uh, and try and get those payment ledgers. Certainly if someone's represented, it's easier to get that done. The attorneys understand the issues and uh, will be on their own adjusters to sort of get that information to us.
0: And then she also says there's sort of a second part of her question saying, especially difficult for surgery cases performed at ambulatory surgery centers. Both Joe and I know how I feel about ambulatory surgery (laughs) (laughs) centers. I believe it is a form of privateering uh, that the physicians are engaging in and just stealing money from everybody. So I I get that. um, They're especially difficult entities to deal with. Heck, uh, we spend a lot of our day dealing with medical provider applications filed primarily
1: by those entities, just, again, privateering on the backs of their own patients. And I guess ultimately to get those records, uh, we always have the subpoena process if we need to.
0: Ultimately, yeah. yeah.
1: If we really have to resort to that, we can send a subpoena, get the records, get the bills and everything else. Um, and then you sort of have to piece it together like, like a puzzle, but right. it's, it's one way to sort of backdoor that information.
0: So I'm over here. I don't see any more questions. Uh, please feel free. Most people, I think, are going to see this. We're going to see this in a recording. Feel free to call Joe or myself, email Joe or myself, text Joe or myself and we'll go back to you with your questions about sure. reimbursement and subrogation. Sure, and I
1: anticipate we'll have another one of these about the update once this case law starts to develop oh, yeah. based on the Sanchez. So.
0: All right, thanks for joining us Thanks, today, everybody. everybody. Enjoy your have holidays. Day, Merry Christmas.